A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by Teach Coalition with the New York City Election Day around the corner. It's time to drop the excuses and vote when it comes to funding for our schools and communities. Elected officials, pay attention, pay close attention to the people who vote. It's simple. If you're not voting, you don't have a voice, and it doesn't matter which candidate it is. You just have to be out there. Make sure you vote early or on June 22nd, the primary election day. If you have any questions or need help with your voter plan, call or email the Orthodox Union's Teach NYS at 646-459-5162. That's 646-459-5162. Or email frandm at teachcoalition.org. That's frandm at teachcoalition.org. And I'm going to post the link and the phone number in the description as well. When you vote, elected officials take note. And uh, for all those out in the country, what's, what's called the country, it's really the Catskill Mountains, uh, you have to be in New York City to vote. So you got to come back all the way from the country to vote in the city. Surprisingly, the Catskills are not a borough of New York City. And for those listeners who are either fortunate or unfortunate enough, depends on how you look at it, to not reside in New York City. So remind your friends and relatives who do so to vote in this upcoming uh, election. Teach Coalition successfully obtains millions of dollars every year in funding for all sorts of programs, for general studies, teachers in schools, salaries, uh, security in schools, textbooks, eyeglasses for students. They have a program for that and many more other programs. This is something that's very diverse and for all sorts of assistance. And the only reason that this all this work is possible is because the Jewish community has a voice in City Hall, which is seen from voter turnout during these uh, elections. Now, this episode is in honor of the yard site of the great Kloisenberger Rebbe, and it has been generously sponsored Lili Nishmas, Reb David Ben Repinchas, and Mindel Basr of Meshulam Zev, and it's dedicated by friends and family. Um, and it's, of course, in honor of Rebbe Kassil Yehuda Halberstam, the Tzans Kloisenberger Rebbe. It was his yard site yesterday on the ninth day of Tammuz, and Rebbe Kassil Yehuda Ben Ritzvi Hirsch, scion of the Divri Chaim of Tzans, and great leader before and during and especially afterwards in the rebuilding after the Holocaust. Um, so we're going to be speaking about him. There's actually part two in that series. And 
It's funny, I just got back, um, that's why this episode is late, I'm still recovering, um, resting up, just got back from a trip last week, it was uh, really a fantastic trip, just returned uh, from Central Europe, with from Czech Republic and Slovakia and Austria and Hungary and all over the place, with a wonderful group, it was the Argedalia Shul in Lakewood, and it was run by ENS Tours and Eli Slomowitz, um, wonderful, everything worked out, it was great great group of guys, very entertaining also, and we explored the Jewish story in Vienna. We also went up to Holoshev, where the, where the Shach is buried, that was exciting. And in Budapest, it was funny, the Orthodox synagogue, the gorgeous and ancient Orthodox synagogue, uh, was open, whereas the Neolog, uh, which is the Hungarian version of, of, of conservative or Reform Judaism, at the Do- very famous Dohani Street Synagogue, one of the nicest shuls in the world, was closed uh, because of Corona. So it kind of fits the whole stereotype of the Orthodox being more liberal about the pandemic rules than the uh, than the non-Orthodox. So that, that that was funny as well. Of course, we went to the Chassam Seifer and Reb Shail of Kerestir. And by Reb Shail of Kerestir, we, we discovered that there's actually some fascinating authentic history. So there's really no real reason to rely on myth and legend when discussing Reb Shail. That was an interesting discovery. And we went to the concentration camp of Mauthausen. Even though the Kleisenberger Rebbe was never there, I still related some stories of the Kleisenberger Rebbe's time in other camps that he was in, in Mildorf, in, in, in Auschwitz. And it's because I simply can't help it. And I always wondered if that's morally correct uh, for a tour guide to do, to relate stories about people who were not in the camp that we're visiting. So that's, that's, that's a debate for itself. Whether that's, uh, you know, I, of course I clarified, I said, even though he wasn't here, I'd like to st- st- relate a story from here. Um, or does all stories have to be related to that specific camp? That's a tour guide dilemma. But with the Kleisenberger Rebbe, we can probably make an exception because his stories about him are so inspiring and he was such a beloved figure that I couldn't help it. And I related stories about the Kleisenberger Rebbe. I mentioned that this Shabbos is his yard site. So that brings us right from the trip, uh, right to the story at hand, to the, the, the great, the Heilige Kleisenberger Rebbe. And it's a continuation of part one. A few weeks ago, I did part one. And if you haven't listened to it yet, and even if you have, you can listen to it again. Um, and I'll post the link as well from part one. Now, there was some feedback from part one, and I guess that will be the best place to start. Um, the the feedback from from uh, from that part. And first of all, I made a technical mistake, and I mentioned the name of the city. I mentioned how the Jews always referred to it by its German name, Kleisenberg, and uh, and uh, it had a Romanian and Hungarian names as well. And the correct way to say it um, was that Cluj is the Romanian name, and Kolsovar, Kolosvar is the Hungarian name. I think I said it the opposite uh, last time. Um, so, got a few letters, uh, many, a lot of feedback. I'm just going to read a couple of them from last time about part one about the Kleisenberger Rebbe. Um, number one, is, it was said, Cluj or Kolosvar or Kleisenberg is not a town. It is a very large city and the county seat of Transylvania. It is the second largest city in Romania and was one of the largest cities in Hungary when it was part of Hungary. Um, Also, thank you for pointing out that his post-war shift on Zionism was quite nuanced. He did not become a Zionist by any definition. The only reason this shift became such a flashpoint was because he was a son-in-law of Rav Chaim Tzvi Teitelbaum Vatsi Chaim, 
and a grandson of the great grandson of the Divrei Chaim of Tzans. If his last name would have been Schwartz or Friedman, no one would have even noticed the shift. I heard that they once asked the Satmarov why he was so belligerent against the Kleisenberger Rebbe when he gets along well with others who are well to the left of him. He supposedly answered that he is one of us, and therefore it is much more of an issue that he has shifted in that regard. And of course, the subject of avoiding non-kosher food during the war is a touchy one. I had mentioned in part one about how the Kleisenberger Rebbe had testified about himself that he had not eaten non-kosher food, and I raised my own skepticism about such stories in general, and uh, or even my dislike of such stories in general, but when it came to the Kleisenberg Rebbe, it was his own audio testimony which said as such, um, so this uh, listener is commenting on that, and he's saying, on one hand it can be deemed praiseworthy, while on the other hand it can be considered foolish and against halacha. It can also cause some to question why everyone, why everyone who did eat treif uh, for their survival? I once heard that the Kleisenberger Rebbe was asked about his avoiding treif for non-kosher food and what was the halachic justification for it. If I remember correctly, his response was that he did not do it for halachic reasons, as halachically it was 100% permitted to eat the treif food. He said that he did it because of timtum halev. He said that he knew the war would involve hundreds of life and death decisions, and he felt that if he would eat non-kosher food, he would not have the proper frame of mind to make the correct decisions. He viewed it as a way to keep himself alive. Wow. If only we would understand what it means to have such pure lave that eating treif would jeopardize our lives. Very, very interesting perspective. By the way, I just want to parenthetically say that he... uh, told those around him to partake in eating non-kosher food for survival, to eat, and he kept this stringency for himself personally. He never uh, made it for others. That's an important point as well. Another um, loyal and dedicated listener um, commented on how I mentioned how uh, the Kleisenberger Rebbe had issues with the Satmarov. The Satmarov, and he had gone into, gotten into dispute in the post-war. It was his uncle, um, about um, about his his shift on Zionism, and I mentioned that he was the only one who he had got got didn't get along with, and he corrected me that there were several people who the Kleisenberger Rebbe did not get along with. Number one, I myself mentioned in part one that the the Rabbi Glasner, who was first of all, there was Rabbi Shmuel Glasner, who was a descendant of the Chassam Seifer, who was the rabbi of the mainstream Orthodox community in Kleisenberg, and upon his passing, and then uh, um, the Kleisenberger Rebbe. Uh, came in and was a rabbi of the separatist community, of the Hasidic extremist community in Kleisenberg, whereas Rabbi Glasner's son, Rabbi Kiva Glasner, remained the rabbi of the mainstream Orthodox community in uh, uh, in uh, in Kleisenberg. So they obviously were in dispute there as well. Um, and this is a descendant of the Chazam Seifer, and he was a Zionist, um, and he was a tremendous uh, Torah leader, a Torah scholar, and um, so the Hasidic community was a separatist community. Um, in fact, the Satmarov himself almost became the, the was hired, almost was hired, he even had a rabbinical uh, um, invitation to, to become the rabbi of the separatist community. Instead, his nephew did, the Kleisenberger Rav, um, he became the rabbi there. So they were in uh, a dispute. Um, but uh, the Kleisenberger Rebbe also had uh, issues with um, with with using the name Tzans in America. There was his cousins, the Babov and and Gribov and other descendants of Tzans. So there were, that was also a point of friction that he had with some of his own relatives. 
Um, you know, and they even went to a din Torah, they even went to a rabbinical court to make a compromise about using the name of Tzans. Um, so there was there was that issue as well. There was other territorial issues. There was issue with people changing allegiances. Um, one of the, the Kleisenberger Rav, after the war, was one of the first big names in Williamsburg. Uh, he was the first official Hasidic cheder, uh, boys' school, in, in post-war in Williamsburg. And as others came and set up shop, people left for other places for all sorts of reasons, especially when many joined Satmer. And, he, and the, the Kleisenberger Rebbe did not realize what type of incredible influence the Satmer Rav would have in Williamsburg and on Orthodox Jewish life in the United States. And he felt that there were others who were stealing uh, his Hasidim, the Kleisenberger Rebbe's Hasidim, especially, especially those who were survivors who had basked in his presence in the displaced persons camps. So that, that became a, a issue, an issue uh, post-war. Um, it was also uh, a garlitzer anical, this letter writer writes, which means that he was very sharp, and plenty of people post-war wanted an easier version, uh, not so demanding. Uh, the Kleisenberg Rebbe was very demanding of his Hasidim, and, uh, and expected them to grow. And uh, there were those who uh, you know, went, and went to other pastures. Um... There's another issue, another another point of uh, tension that there was with the Kleisenberger Rebbe and others. Uh, even though he fought with the Satmarov, um, but he never fought. In fact, he the, the disputed. He never criticized the, the Torah scholarship or the Avaida, the the leadership of the Satmarov. It just they, they had disagreed about certain ideas, and the and the Kleisenberger Rebbe was quite public about it, and vice versa. Um, however, the Kleisenberg Rebbe they felt that there was many, uh, there was many in the post-war generation, um, those who he felt um, shouldn't even attain leadership in the Jewish community, and he felt that had had many of the great Rebbes not been wiped out during the Holocaust, and uh, many of the post-war Rebbes would not have even been considered leaders. So he felt that the leadership in general was um, was lacking in the post-war era, and that caused friction between him and the rabbis he was criticizing uh, as well. In that context, I'll mention that he once um, that he once uh, he once quoted a, a cited his ancestor Rabbi Hirsch of Zidichov. One time, there was a fish's head uh, that was cut off from the body in front of the Zidichov Rebbe, and the body was still flopping, which happens when you go fishing. So the Zidichover said, he commented, that this is how Rebbes will dance and jump around in the generation prior to Messiah's arrival. They're going to jump around without a head. And so the Kleisenberg Rebbe, when he quoted that, he put a positive spin on it. He said, don't be concerned that they will be without the authentic Hasidus of the Baal Shem Tev, figuratively without a head, because these Rebbes post-war, these Rebbes in the generation before Messiah's arrival will still jump and dance. They'll still retain the external expressions, the dress, the community, the social cohesiveness, the connection to each other and to their Rebbe. And that will be enough to sustain them and keep them going in that generation of, uh, of Mashiach. So the, the, um, the, uh, the idea that, that, that there will be lacking in leadership and lacking in authentic Hasidus disturbed him, but he was able to put it in its uh, proper context. Speaking of his issues with Satmar, so once the Satmarov 
had passed away in 1979, so Reb title by him, the Be'er Meisha, became the Rebbe of Satmar, and then it was also a little more complicated. On the on one hand, so there was this dispute with Satmar, because they, the Satmar criticized the uh, the Kleisenberger Rebbe's, uh, what, what the, in their eyes, his compromise with Zionism post-war. On the other hand, the Be'er Meisha kind of grew up in his house, because um, when the uh, when the Atzichayim and Ruchayim see title by him, uh, passed away, so so they sent the young orphan Reb Meisha for a few years to live by his elder sister and her prominent husband. Right, it was his it was his brother in law. Um, so the uh, the uh, this is a you know made it more tense. He'd kind of grown up in his house. It was his brother in law, and yet uh, they were on two sides of the ideological uh, camp. He actually. Uh, the Be'erach Meisha was in Israel when when the, the Kleisenberger Rebbe passed away, and uh, he attended the Leviah, but uh, was not uh, but did not speak at the Leviah. Either way, we're gonna go keep on moving on from his disputes to his his, his life and career and made some amazing stories. I actually interviewed a survivor recently who knew the Kleisenberger Rebbe while he was still a young rabbi in pre-war Romania and Kleisenberg. Um, which is not that many people remember the Kleisenberger Rebbe, not many people alive today who remember the Kleisenberger Rebbe from before the war. Um, so he said that his father was a businessman, and all monetary disputes that he had in his business, he brought to the Kleisenberger Rebbe. So after surviving the war, this man who I was speaking to, his faith was still intact, but he no longer wanted to identify as a chassid. And definitely he did not want to have the external uh, appearances of one. And when he was waiting for his ship to the United States in Bremerhaven, in Bremerhaven, in Germany, after he'd been a few years in the DP camps, so he heard that the Kleisenberger Rebbe was also in town, in Bremerhaven, uh, and, uh, and waiting for his boat. So he avoided him. He told me he did not want to meet the Kleisenberger Rebbe. Uh, he didn't want to see him, and he didn't want to meet him. Why not? He said he didn't want him to be disappointed with him, with how he looks. He didn't want to disappoint the Kleisenberger Rebbe. He doesn't look like, a, the way he said it was, he doesn't look like a Hasidish Yingel or Hasidish Bukhril. I don't remember how he said it um, anymore. And he didn't want uh, the Kleisenberger Rebbe to be disappointed with him. And he also uh, didn't want him to start demanding that he return to his Hasidic look. Uh, so he avoided meeting him altogether. In the end of last episode of, on the Kleisenberger Rebbe, the part one, I mentioned all the way at the end that uh, that um, that his 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 he, the Kleisenberger Rebbe considered his greatest accomplishment of his career was the fact that he kept the custom of keeping the time of Rabbeinu Tam uh, still relevant and still applicable in his community in Kiryatzans in Netanya. And uh, I want to go back to that because I want to elaborate. I left it a bit ambiguous. I'd run out of time then. And I think that it is a, a major insight, not only into the Kleisenberger Rebbe, but in general into the rebuilding of Orthodox Jewish life in the state of Israel in the post-war era. And the Kleisenberger Rebbe had a large part in that. Um, what happened was, is that the, the Kleisenberger Rebbe a, was very, very, um, very stubborn, almost obsessive, about maintaining the custom of the Rabbeinu Tam. The Rabbeinu Tam, of course, is the time of, of how to measure the time of day and when to daven and when to end the fast and when the sunset is and when nightfall is and when Ben Hashmashis, when the murky time between sunset and nightfall is. And this is, of course, an ancient, ancient dispute in halachic uh, uh, literature which I will not get involved in because I'm not proficient in it, and also because it's less relevant to the story at hand. 
And uh, in Europe, from Vilna in the north until Hungary in the south and everywhere in between, and Germany, everyone kept Rabbeinu Tam, shockingly, even Lithuania guys, um, even in Vilna. And even though the Vilna Gain uh, maintained that the time should be earlier, like the other, like uh, like uh, like um, you know, earlier sunset and the earlier uh, time of nightfall, but uh, most did not do so. Most uh, most kept the Rabbeinu Tam. Uh, so so, and especially in Galicia and Hungary, that's what the time that was kept. And the Kleisenberger Rebbe was wanted to make sure that that stays, even though in Israel. The old community, the old yeshiv, kept the other point of view, kept the Vilna Gain's opinion. Um, and they maintained an earlier time for nightfall. And this is relevant for davening, this is relevant for when, what time to pray, what time to have a fast day, what time the entrance and exit of Shabbos, Friday night and Saturday night, when Shabbos begins and ends. And it's relevant for many, many things in the Jewish calendar. When is nightfall? Is nightfall an earlier time or a later time? This has big ramifications in Jewish life. And therefore, the Kloisenberger Rebbe uh, went ahead and said, even though the custom in Israel is to keep the earlier time, I say that in Kiryat Sanz, it is the custom of Galicia, it is the custom of the Devrichayim of Tzanz. The Devrichayim of Tzanz is the Mara Asra, he's the rabbi here. And therefore, I'm going to keep the Rabbeinu Tam custom. That's, that's what he maintained. And he was quite obsessive about it, so much so that towards the end of his life, uh, he, he, uh, he said... What did I do? What did I accomplish uh, throughout my life? What was I able to do? And the, those around him were shocked by what, what? What do you mean? You accomplished so much? You 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 rebuilt everything. Look, you inspired others. You're a father to thousands of chassidim, to your followers. You built uh, schools, yeshivas. You you mifal hashas, your koilul shas, laniato hospital. I mean, there's so much that you did. So he said, you know something? I think I did more. I was more successful with Rabbeinu Tam by implementing the custom of Rabbeinu Tam. And the question is, what in the world did he mean by that? That's what he accomplished? That's so much more, doing Rabbeinu Tam? And, um, and the answer is, is that the way he read the map, and, and, and it's a fascinating discussion for itself, about the rebuilding of the Orthodox, or the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredi community in post-war Israel, and to a lesser extent in the United States, uh, there was a closing of ranks, especially in Israel, uh, closing of ranks of a defensive minority uh, fighting for survival, and therefore we we have to join forces. And this is expressed through even pre-war. Uh, you know, this re- really starts pre-war. Just take a step back. Starts pre-war with the urbanization of Jewish life uh, uh, and the politicization and the overwhelming secularization of Jewish life, but mainly because of urbanization, so local custom, local community custom was disappearing because there was this major urban life with a shtibel on every corner and people kind of doing whatever they want and and urban life uh, was very not conducive for keeping local custom and local custom was out the window um, and uh, and there was this um, the there was this tendency for orthodoxy to join forces to to round out the differences and and uh, this is expressed politically through Agudas Yisrael and, and expressed educationally through a unified yeshiva system, through a yeshiva movement, through a yeshiva system, through a yeshiva education, um, and, uh, and in many other ways as well. Um, and in halachic psak, going to the text as opposed to the living local custom. 
especially in the areas of Lithuania. Um, seeing what the text says and, and codification of the halachic text. And the codification overrides communal custom. And uh, this, uh, this, this, you know, is, again, it's a huge topic and it's a fascinating historical discussion and the role of the Mishnah Brura and, and uh, the role of, of, of the rebuilding of the community in, in Israel after the war. Um, but it, it comes out in, in, in many ways. And I think the most extreme example is in the Savarda community, actually, of what the role of Rovadi Yosef uh, was to basically to, uh, to go to war almost with, uh, with Sephardic custom from different lands. And he demanded that, 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 that we close ranks and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and have a certain central psak, certain central halachic system that, uh, that, goes, uh, that goes in one way and not with local custom, not with the country of origin. And there were Sephardic Paiskim who disagreed with him and tried to fight for local custom and country of origin custom. Um, so this is a, is a huge topic of post-war Jewish life. And, uh, and, it was, and it was a mechanism of survival. It was a mechanism of building, of, of closing ranks, of, of rounding out the differences, of coming together. And this way we have a unified front and everyone keeps the same custom and everyone keeps the same this and the same that. And this way it'll be easier to, to, to be part of the community and to strengthen the community. And what the Kleisenberger Rebbe got up and he said it was, no, we're not doing it. And uh, we're not going to, we're not going to, um, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to maintain our independence. And this is part of why he ended up in Netanya. He didn't want to be in the mainstream urban places of Bnei Brak and Tel Aviv and uh, Yerushalayim. It, other reasons as well. Uh, part of it was his acceptance of of, uh, of of being part of the of, of being part of the reality of the state of Israel uh, after what he had experienced in the Holocaust. But that's another story. And um, and he uh, and he and he wanted his independence. And and the Rabbeinu Tam keeping that custom was an expression of that. Of we are independent. This is Galicia. This is Tzans. This is our own community. We are we are not part. We are not. You know we are part of the the greater community, but we are still independent, and we are able to maintain our own customs and our own way of life. And uh, and he even you know he demanded it so much that he felt that uh, Galicia and Sanz and the Divrei Chaim became this extraterritorial place that's not limited by geographic boundaries. And there's an existence of Galicia and 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 a Hasidic community in Galicia. It could exist in Netanya. And uh, and he said that so much so that the custom prevails that anyone who comes to visit this community must. Must uh, must also keep Rabbeinu Tam because because this is the custom and you can't diverge. Even though Israel, everywhere in Israel, they don't keep this custom, but here this is what we do. Um, so it's a fascinating thing, and if we can express it in 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 scientific terms, he saw it more as a sociological reality than a geographical reality. I mean, Galicia is not a geographical place; it's a sociological reality, and I can create a Galicia community. In Netanya, and it's irrelevant what the geography is. Um, so that's a, 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 a very important and fascinating point. Um, so 
This is also related to his style of psak. It was a way to create a Galician Hasidic Tzans community. It was not universal psak. It was very narrow and community-oriented, with an emphasis on custom, on Hasidic custom, on Galicia custom, on Kabbalistic influence on halacha, which was unlike his great-grandfather, the Chaim of Tzans. The emphasis on custom was also unlike the Divrei Chaim. And as a halachic decisor, decisor he, his audience was his community, which he was trying to rebuild, the group of Galician and Hungarian survivors, which were his followers. Um, his, that was his audience. And his goal was to connect them to the timeless and non-geographic limited sons, which they were to continue in the new world, in the United States and in Israel. Granot, Dr. Tamir Granot, who wrote uh, the most on the, on, on the Kleisenberger Rebbe, and wrote the best on the Kleisenberger Rebbe, so he points out how the majority of his, his halachic writing, as far as pages go, are on Oira Chaim and Yeridea, which is the daily ritual law and custom, whereas his great-grandfather, his illustrious great-grandfather, the Devei Chaim, was mostly on Chayshin Mishpat and Evan Ezer, which is monetary and marital law. It was more of a universal Paisik. And the Kleisenberg Rebbe also rarely quotes outside of Galicia Paiskim, primarily Hasidic Paiskim, primarily the Devei Chaim and the Chasam Seifer, also Hungarian Paiskim, but no Sephardic Paiskim, almost never Lithuanian or Polish or German, his role as a community leader crosses with his role as a Paisik for that community, and they're both utilized for the same goal. And that was also the choice of Netanyahu, what it signaled as far as his independence, his change of stance on Israel, and his independence from the mainstream ultra-Orthodox community. Um, in fact, speaking of Netanyahu, so my Rebbe, uh, Rebbe Fal Shmuel Levitz, uh, would, when he was a bacher in Hebron, he was a young student at Hebron Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, he would go with his friends on vacation in Netanya. Um, and one time uh, the, 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 he came there and it was the, 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 the Kleisenberg Rebbe's Yeshiva was, was still, uh, they were still studying, they didn't have vacation. And, uh, and so, so he, so the Kleisenberg Rebbe did not want the students of the Yeshiva to join his minion. Kleisenberg Rebbe was davening late, uh, you know, Rabbeinu Tam. But the yeshiva, his yeshiva was already during Seder. They were studying. The students were studying. So he he needed needed the Hebron boys who were on vacation to join his minion. He wouldn't have his own students join his minion, but the Hebron Litvak boys uh, to, asked them to join. So I asked Rafal if he joined. He said his friends joined. He didn't want to join because it was late. He, he wouldn't join. He said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to help him daven late. Uh, and, and, and in that context, there's an apocryphal story also about the, the Kleisenberg Rebbe living in Netanya. I don't know if it's true or not, that this is the story that they say over, that some Litvak Rosh Yeshiva was vacationing in Netanya, and he said to the Kleisenberg Rebbe, in surprise, how do you live in this uh, city? It's so immodest. Everyone has inappropriate attire. It's a beach town. And the Kleisenberg Rebbe responds, I live here for many years, and I have not yet seen anything immodest or inappropriate yet. So it all depends on what what you're looking for and how you're looking for. Um I heard a, 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 you know, one of the closest students of the Kleiserberger Rebbe was, is, is Rav Asher Weiss, a prominent uh, rabbi in, in, uh, in t- today. And he um, related on several occasions stories of the Kleiserberger Rebbe. So I listened to a few online. They're available. Some fantastic stories that he shared. And also with his father during the Holocaust with the Kleiserberger Rebbe. And, um, and uh, his leadership in the displaced persons camps after the war. So unlike other survivors, who, even great Torah leaders who were survivors, he, he took a very activist position and leadership position right away after, the, after you know, especially, even though he, he himself had sustained such a loss 
of his entire family, his wife, his, all his children. He had 11 children before the war. One had passed away unrelated to the Holocaust, and then he lost 10 children during the Holocaust, nine with his wife, who were killed right away in Auschwitz, and his oldest son, his Lipa, his oldest son, uh, passed away after liberation. He survived till the end of the war, and didn't survive, uh, in, and, and, and passed away shortly after liberation. Very tragic. So he was literally left alone, and yet he gets up and is able to to uh, rebuild and 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 right away after the liberation, go into a leader position, leadership position in in Feldafing and Farenwald in the DP camps. So he asked uh, Rabasha Weiss's father to, "You have to help me. You have to come build together with me." So uh, this this young man said to the Rebbe, "I need to learn. I haven't learned all these years. I didn't study Torah." And the Rebbe got angry with him, and he said, "Mesiris Nefesh." Dedication of, of, the, of the nefesh is not mesiris haguf, is not uh, not giving of your body. It's giving of your soul. Closing the gemara for Hashem is true mesiris nefesh, and uh, this is what he expected from himself and from others to close the gemara for God for the Jewish people, not just to give up of your time and your energy and 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 meals and uh, money. It's also to also to give up on your personal um, spiritual growth on behalf of building the Jewish people. And while he was in the DP camps, the Rebbe was involved in very non-Hasidic Rebbe functions. He would make shidduchim, he would marry off couples, he built schools, he built mikvahs, hundreds of survivors literally became his children. It was actually literally kiruv, it was, it was outreach, bringing them back to religious life, because many of them had distanced themselves from religious life, and he brought them back. So it was kind of pioneering kiruv. He was, uh, he was a, 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 a bringing them back to Jewish life. Um, which is an often overlooked point about the survivors in the DP camps. And he was involved in the burial of the dead and all kinds of administrative work. He was working as a religious leader and not as a Hasidic leader, not as a Hasidic tzaddik or a rebbe. This is in the initial years. Now, Granot uh, interviewed a Gera Hasid who related that his father had distanced himself from religious life as a result of the Holocaust. And while in the DP camp, he saw a sign in the kitchen that stated that all those eating in this dining room should do so with a head covering and the meat is all glott kosher. So he, he was told that, the rab, that Rabbi Halberstam of Kleisenberg is in charge of this kitchen. So this survivor then declared that if there are still Jews who consider these things important after the Holocaust, then I want to be among that group. So here's someone who became a Gerachasid, returned to becoming a Gerachasid. So he's not a follower of the Kleisenberger Rebbe. He never even interacted with the Kleisenberger Rebbe. And yet, the only reason he's religious today is because of the Kleisenberger Rebbe. So it's what I think is one of the best stories, because we're looking at the size of his community as a barometer of how they rebuilt. Like, wow, look how many families there are as members of the Tanz Kleisenberg community. What looks like he was very successful at rebuilding. But here, what, what Gunnarot is bringing out in this with this story is that we have someone who was not a follower and did not become a follower of the Kleisenberg Rebbe and never even interacted with him. All he did was saw this sign. And he said, if there are people like that still after the war, then I'm going to return to Jewish life. And, uh, and that was so. Uh, so he saw himself initially as a general leader and only later did it coalesce into a Hasidic, as a Hasidic tzaddik with a following. But because of this prior leadership, he often did things that would be surprising roles for regular Hasidic leaders, which was his active involvement in the educational institutions as a Rosh Hashiva, um, he, he, when he, um, he, uh, he, uh, once, um, he, the, the, uh, he once as a, a Rosh Hashiva, he gave, he delivered a regular shear as a Rosh Hashiva. And he gave, gave a regular Gemara shear as, as, you know, as 
not as a Hasidic tzaddik, as a Magad Shir, someone who gave a daily Talmud class. And, uh, and someone said, you know, it's, it's not appropriate for a, uh, a Rosh Hashiva. He's, he's supposed to be, he's, sorry, it's not appropriate for a Hasidic Rebbe. He's supposed to, it's going to diminish the title of a Hasidic Rebbe. It's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be appropriate because he's, he's being a regular uh, teacher. And he said, it's good that a thousand Rebbes should be nullified and canceled and not be, not be Rebbes, but it's Kedai. It's more important that I should have and build one Talmud Hagen, one, one Talmudic scholar, one student of the Talmud that, that will become, that will be produced if I'm a Rebbe, if I'm a teacher of Torah. That's more important than all the titles of Rebbe in the world. And that's what he really believed. And he saw himself as a teacher of Torah, primarily. And that was a, a very a very strong statement of his uh, as in the two roles that he was playing as both a Hasidic tzaddik and as a teacher of Torah. Um, but he went on to build an orphanage, an old age home, and especially the hospital. Uh, these weren't Hasidic institutions, but rather general responsibility towards the community well beyond his own circle of followers. When he built Laniato Hospital, he said, the world should know that a Hasidic Rebbe can also build a hospital. And he was involved in all the technical building and medical and technological details of the building. This was a rational and non-mystical project. So the Hasidic leader had assumed a very earthly role in this uh, context, which he, which he was proud of. Now, he achieved renown as a great Torah scholar, unique to Hasidic tzaddik. He delivered a shir. At, the, at his Friday night tish, he delivered a shir, a, a pilpul, not only Hasidic Torah. He conveyed, conveying a message about the supremacy of Torah study and every, every Friday night. In those days, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s even, about 20, 30 people attended the tish in those days. And mostly fell asleep during his his uh, Talmudic discourse. Yet he pushed on, and he kept on doing this as this was his message that he wanted to convey, and he ultimately succeeded. Um, once, when Rabasher Weiss was in a shear uh, by by the Kleisenberger Rebbe, so he ended uh, the shear very early. Why? Because someone was waiting, and that someone was a donor, and he demanded to know of the Rebbe. Why are you late? We made up to meet at this and this time, and I have a flight to catch. Uh, so the Rebbe said, I didn't forget about the meeting, but earlier today I had a terrible headache and I was feeling very, very terrible and the medicine wasn't helping, so I had no choice but to deliver a shear to make me feel better. And that's why I'm late. So the only way that he was able to feel better was by delivering a Torah class. Another time he was visited by two students of Brisk uh, who were married with families and he was amazed at their dedication to Torah study despite their poverty. So the next day at his weekly Chumash Rashi class to his students, he mentioned this meeting and he declared, I don't need your Shreimlach. You can throw them away. What I need is your dedication to Torah study. This was coming from someone who put a great deal of emphasis on the Shreim, on the conservative traditional dress. It actually meant a lot to him. Custom, Hasidic custom, the Hasidic dress, the Tzan's custom, rebuilding Galicia in the post-war. And yet he was still expressing his priorities. He would pray every day for hours. His prayer was, was literally for hours every day. No one knew how long the davening would take on any given day. All three prayers of the day, Shachras and Chalmayrav. And he would cry during every prayer. Tears! It's simply astounding, I mean, uh, to be capable of doing that. In the middle of Shemayna Esrei, he would cry out directly to God in Yiddish. Uh, that was how his, his relationship with God. Um, so he built the hospital, like I mentioned, neighborhoods, neighborhoods in the United States, in Israel, infrastructure. He was completely vo- devoted to the Jewish people well beyond his own community and well beyond the accepted purview of a Hasidic Rebbe. 
He was a leader. He was there for the mundane needs for the Jewish people and the endeavors in rebuilding after the uh, the, the the Jewish war. I'm sorry, after the, the rebuilding the Jewish people after the war. Excuse me. And um, so, so he also when he spoke at the eighth Sim Hashas of the Daf Yomi, and uh, in that context, he he uh, in 1982 he he there's. There are some very interesting things he said, but more importantly, he he spoke at Agudas Yisrael. So this is a complete ideological turnaround. He was part; he was someone from the other extreme. He was a nephew of the Satmarov. He was a rabbi of the separatist community in Kleisenberg, and uh, and and now he comes and he speaks at the uh, the uh, Agudas Yisrael Daf Yomi. He's someone who was able to, because of, of what he experienced in the Holocaust, be able to modify his stance on many issues, political issues, and to recognize uh, the need for change. And he asked that Dafyaimi be studied with Tysus uh, and discussed it in the context of his network with his Shaskails. And I mentioned how he had given a large cash prize to a young man in Israel who had offered to be tested on the entire Shas with Tysus. And then he said that what amazed him even more was that a young man in Chicago who didn't know any Yiddish said that he too would like to be tested on Shas with Tysus. And he was amazed that someone who didn't know Yiddish could know the entire Shas with Tysus. That's what uh, amazed him. But he said that he couldn't test him because he didn't know enough English. Um, he also, he, in that speech, which is it's online, I think you can listen to there. It, it, he has a you know you see his sense of humor as well. He said that he remembered when the Dafyaimi was started and there was opposition to the idea for all kinds of reasons. Um, but we see today, so many years later, how successful it is and how it has survived the war and kept so many Jews to the you know connected to the page of the Gemara. He then he and then he says. Uh, um, uh, you know, he talks about uh, Rameir Shapiro. It's, uh, very interesting. I remember when Rameir Shapiro was still the rabbi in Sanak and in Piotrkov, and later he became the rabbi in Lublin. So uh, he goes on to uh, to uh, to speak about that. Now, a loyal and dedicated listener sent me the Rebbe's last will and testament, which is an amazing document, sixty pages long. And I want to share some highlights of that document. He discusses, you know, the importance of giving charity and his, his modesty is expressed. The amazing modesty that he had. He's saying how little he knows and how, how little he's done. And he praises his wife and he asks forgiveness from his children that he could have been a better father. And then he asks his daughters to dress modestly and not to wear a shaitel, God forbid. He doesn't specify if he's talking about a lace-top shaitel or not, but he says any shaitel. And his sons, he says, they should finish Shah several times a year and then he'll put in a good word for them and will go to his ancestors and declare that his children who keep, still keep the Torah and mitzvahs. And the study of Torah is emphasized halacha, and he says they should teach others. He says don't get involved in any politics, it's better to study Torah. He says it's important to accept diversity in the Jewish world, to realize, to realize that there's more than one true Torah way of life, to respect those who disagree with you. He says the problem today is that everyone thinks that only my way is correct, not recognizing and accepting that it's not the case to accept others who are different than you. He cites stories to support this position, all in this will. He accepts uh, different opinions to study. And then he says to, it's, it's important to study every day from the Sefer Chafetz Chaim. And uh, don't, get ever, don't ever get involved in any dispute. Distance yourself, but distance yourself from heretical uh, Jews and their literature, literature. But you should pray that they return to the correct path. Uh, battling evil should never be personal, but rather for the sake of heaven. To speak only Yiddish, it's very important to him. He distributed his funds to his institutions and to charities. And then he says, don't purchase home in expensive neighborhoods because it's a waste of money. And of course, uh, many, many other details that, that uh, I thought it was just interesting to share some of the highlights. 
There's still more, and we're going to have a part three soon. It's already been sponsored. We can have more sponsorship, of course, as well. But there's so much to say about the Kleisenberger Rebbe, so we're looking forward uh, sometime soon to part three. And uh, so this was part two about the Kleisenberger Rebbe. This is Yehuda Gabber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and other and lectures and anything else. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.